weekends yesterday don't come en masse, I'll be pissed um, because I'm coming in because you said you'd come in. Um, 9.30, yeah. 9.30, Which, yeah, let's just say 9.30, like, like, like next year's Brandeis style. You seniors don't know it. Uh, yeah, no, it's, I think it's ridiculous. But there you go. Okay, so 9.30 tomorrow, I'll let you know where. Um, okay, so this is um, lots of Milton to do. So, um, okay, one of the things that I wanted to do was just, since we actually never um, officially read Areopagitica, um, I wanted to read you a couple of passages from it um, that are relevant, obviously, to Paradise Lost, but relevant to Milton as a whole. Um, I think you don't have, do you have the same edition? Is that an Oxford edition that you have? Yeah, it has Areopagitica. Oh, and is it the same pages, though? That would be good, because I was assuming it wasn't. But page 247, if it's the same pages. Um, um, so the, the middle paragraph on 247 um, begins, as for the burning of those okay, Ephesian well, yeah, books. Okay. All right, actually, let's just start, since I've mentioned this several times, on page 259 um, or 258. Um, that um, what's the context here is that learned men are unhappy um, with the fact that everything they have to do has to be licensed before they can publish it. You know, these are debates that are still going on um, or that have returned. It's, uh, but it's debates that have returned with a vengeance with the Internet. That is to say, there's um, the question of whether you can blog anonymously or not, um, real name requirements for Facebook. Um, Milton would be against those. Um, that is uh, Zuckerberg's demand that you can prove that you join Facebook with your real name and that um, it's part of the terms of service and you can be kicked off of Facebook if you're not using your real name. How many of you use your real names on Facebook? Um, it, was, it used to be much easier not to. Um, it's still pretty easy not to, but it used to be much easier not to. But um, in his control freak way, he got pissed off that people's cats had Facebook accounts. Um, no, that was actually what set him off, um, was there was one cat too many with a Facebook account. Um, and, you know, Facebook was just invented as the anti-live journal, as, um, um, as the social network shows. You guys have seen it, right? Well, the first thing he's doing is posting on live journal um, about the woman that he's, that he's going to use Facebook to humiliate. Um, and he puts a slash P at the end of his post, which shows what a nerd he is. Um, so at any rate, unless some should persuade ye... Slash P means end of paragraph. It's a HTML tag. Um, it's it's bra it's it's less than sign forward slash P greater than sign, and that tells you end of paragraph. And it's like you totally don't need it. Um, it's a ridiculous thing to put it's in. It's like the geek bean sprout. <laughs> yes. Okay. Good. Sorry. What? The geek bean sprout. Like how Samson had a thing on his forehead that he thinks is there. It's like the geek thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Unless some should persuade ye, lords and commons, remember this is an address to Parliament, 
Um, Aripagitica because it is um, his version of the kind of speech that would be given. Does anyone know what the Areopagus is? What? The hill. The hill where? Yes. Yes. Not Arlo Hill, but um, where in Greece? Um, outside of Athens? Yes. Uh, yes. Good. Yeah. Right outside the, um, the temple. Um, on the Acropolis in Athens. And it's where Demosthenes and uh, all the other great Greek orators um, uh, spoke, gave speeches um, in a democratic culture where people were um, giving their views of things, much as Satan and his followers do in hell, but no one does in heaven. Um, God just, God is a tyrant. Um, but in hell, they all speak the way they did um, on that hill in ancient Greece. So it's a hill that stands for deliberative democracy, stands for the relationship of democracy to free speech, um, which, again, is a vexed relationship right now. Um, that is, the question is, can you really have a democracy if you don't have free speech? Um, lots of countries think you can, um, like, say, Singapore, um, and, say, the United States the way it's heading. Um, and lots of countries think that free speech is, in order to have democracy, you need free speech. Um, and that was the original idea in the US. Um, Britain has very poor free speech laws. Free speech is not guaranteed in Britain. And um, so there, there are um, issues here. And there, these issues have already come up um, in the 17th century. And Milton is now addressing the parliament um, in what is supposed to be a democracy. Um, and lest some should persuade ye, lords and commons, that these arguments of learned men's discouragement at this your order, the order being that everything had to be licensed before it could be printed. Um, all comments were moderated, and all publications were also moderated. You had, to, you had to get a license from the government to print something. That these arguments that learned men are discouraged at this your order, lest you think that these arguments are mere flourishes and not real, I could recount what I have seen and heard in other countries where this kind of inquisition tyrannizes. So that's a very strong word to use, inquisition. When I have sat among their learned men, for that honor I had. So he's being a little bit autobiographical here. He had sat among the learned men in other countries, for that honor I had, and been counted happy so those in Italy had said, you're lucky because you were born in such a place of philosophic freedom as they supposed England was, while themselves did nothing but bemoan the servile condition into which learning amongst them was brought, that this was it which had damped the glory of Italian wits, that nothing had been there written now these many years but flattery and fustian. Fustian is basically bullshit in the technical sense of bullshit. Um, Harry, um, you probably know that Harry Frankfurt has a famous book called On Bullshit that came out about five years ago, a work of philosophy. Um, and he's very interested in, in bullshit, but a more proper term for it would be fustian. Um, there it was, Milton goes on, that I found and visited the famous Galileo, grown old, a prisoner to the Inquisition for thinking in astronomy otherwise than the Franciscan and Dominican licensers thought. And though I knew that England then was groaning loudest under the prelatical yoke, 
Nevertheless, I took it as a pledge of future happiness that other nations were so persuaded of her liberty. Was Galileo the only contemporary that was mentioned? Yes. In yeah, Galileo is the only person of uh, Milton's own time mentioned in Paradise Lost, um, and a person that Milton knew. Um, as he tells you right here. He went to Italy, he talked and met Galileo. Um, and you'll recall that Galileo had to recant. Um, Galileo said the earth goes round the sun, and he was forced to recant. He was arrested and forced to recant, and his very famous, this is in one of those they never said it books, but his very famous thing that he never said was, nevertheless, it moves. That is, he recanted, but then he um, um, insisted on saying the truth. Nevertheless, it moves. Um, meaning that the earth moves around the sun. Um, so Milton met him and admired him and admired the fact that he stood up for truth against um, the Catholic doctrine of Italy, the Inquisitional doctrine, that for Milton um, was not from the Bible, but was simply the attempt of um, one institution to monopolize power and monopolize knowledge, or to monopolize knowledge in order to monopolize power. Um, and um, who therefore treated Galileo as um, a heretic. And it was only um, JP2, I believe, who finally lifted that from Galileo and from, from Copernicus in the last 20 years or so. Um, in Paradise Lost, you'll recall, Adam asks, um, this is an echo of Comus, Adam asks Raphael, um, isn't it wasteful, and we know that God isn't wasteful, um, but isn't it wasteful to have all of the heavens spinning around the earth every night? That's an enormous amount of motion for um, us just sitting here. And Raphael says, it's a good question. Um, but don't try to figure out what's in God's mind. Um, for all you know, there are other worlds with people in them too. And that was an open question when Milton was um, writing. One of the things that Galileo had discovered was that the planets were, um, were worlds. This was an amazing thing to discover at the beginning of the 17th century. Um, that planets were worlds like the Earth. People didn't know that um, until the beginning of the 17th century. And of course the first thing that people wondered was, do people live there? Are there other beings living on other worlds? So science fiction actually originated at the beginning of the 17th century. Um, that was the first time that the lights in the sky started seeming to people as um, they started realizing what they were. Um, what the, that, that the modern use of the word planet um, came in then. They knew there were planets, but they didn't know what planets were. What they thought planets were were small, brightly lit objects, but small, brightly lit objects in the heavens. And they were called planet because planet means wanderer, because the planets didn't move in the same um, regular way that stars did. But they didn't know that the Earth was a planet. Um, that was the farthest thing from their mind. It was really Galileo and people around him, um, Copernicus to begin with, who said um, that the Earth was a planet. And Kepler, who started figuring out that the Earth's um, revolution around the sun was like that of the other planets. And that, would, that started giving people the idea 
that there could be other worlds with other intelligent beings on them. But that was a brand new, really exciting idea. Um, and Raphael says, maybe it's that. Um, don't worry about it. But, you know, what may happen in the future, and he says, in fact, what will happen in the future is that people trying to figure this out are going to come up with the most insanely elaborate systems to explain the motion of heavenly bodies. And there he means Ptolemaic astronomy, um, where the way Ptolemaic astronomy works is that everything goes around the Earth um, in circles and in cycles, but sometimes the point that is cycling around the Earth the heavenly body will cycle around a point that's cycling around the Earth, and sometimes it'll cycle around a point that's cycling around a point that's cycling around the Earth. And if you add enough of those cycles and epicycles, which is what they're called, and the line that Raphael describes is how they will fill up their sheets of calculations with cycles and with epicycles scribbled or, um, you can predict the motion of any planet, um, even if you calculate imagining that the Earth is the center of their revolutions. But that's just a way to say that, you know, if you're skating with people um, on a large skating rink and doing all sorts of um, figure skating moves, you can always describe it from the point of view of a single skater and just see the rink swirling around the skater and the other skaters who are going around the rink also swirling around that skater in a more complex motion and so on. Um, but it's just a ridiculous way to describe things. So Raphael says, you know, people are going to try to figure this out, and it's all going to be ridiculous how hard they're going to work to do the calculation. You don't have to know about it. Um, however, Milton does know about it. And Milton, therefore, is essentially saying, in my epic, I can actually describe astronomy truly, which no epic writer before me, not mentioning <coughs> Dante, <coughs> Um, could do. And um, my true description of, of um, what the, what, how, how astronomy works, um, I can describe Satan as looking like a sunspot. Um, why? Because Galileo was the person who looked at sunspots, who examined sunspots through his telescopes. And so I actually know, and I know because I know the one person, the Tuscan astronomer, um, who I will mention in the present tense in this book. So in a way, he's saying, and that's why he, he even um, um, invokes Urania at the beginning of Book 7, that is the muse of astronomy in, in, among classical muses. Um, he invokes Urania because um, he and Galileo are now going to be the two people alive in his own time who are going to tell you the truth about the heavens. Um, his truth is, Galileo's truth is literal, Milton's is moral or theological or um, philosophical, but nevertheless, that's the comparison. And here he describes Galileo as the truth teller whom the Inquisition crushed. Um, go back to page 247. Um, and again, here he's saying, those who think that it's okay to license books will... I'll mention a moment in um, the New Testament. As for the burning of those Ephesian books by St. Paul's converts, tis replied, the books were magic, the Syriac surrenders them. It was a private act, a voluntary act, and leaves to us a voluntary imitation. The men in remorse burnt those books, which were their own. The magistrate, by this example, is not appointed. 
So you can burn your own books, that's fine. But the magistrate doesn't have the power to burn other books. These men practice the books. Another might perhaps have read them in some sort usefully. And then this is the important part about what it means to read usefully. Even if the books are heretical, magical books of spells and sorcery, um, it's still useful to have them in the library, not to destroy them, not to burn them. And then he says, good and evil. And I think, in a way, this is the most important single way of understanding everything, every story Milton tells in his three great works in Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson. Good and evil, we know in the field of this world, grow up together almost inseparably. And the knowledge of good is so involved and interwoven with the knowledge of evil. And in so many cunning resemblances, hardly to be discerned, that those confused seeds which were imposed upon Psyche as an incessant labor to cull out and sort asunder were not more intermixed. That is, Psyche had to, that was a, a, a task that Ovid tells about imposed upon Psyche. Um, and then it was from out the rind of one apple tasted that the knowledge of good and evil as two twins cleaving together leapt forth into the world. And perhaps this is that doom which Adam fell into of knowing good and evil. That is to say, of knowing good by evil. So what he's saying is it may be that before the fall, you could know good without knowing evil. But we are all fallen. We are all fallen human beings. And now the only way to know good is to know evil as well. The only way we can know good is by evil is by making the distinction between good and evil. Now, notice he doesn't say, but he's leaving it open, that you could know good in the Garden of Eden without knowing evil. He's not saying that. Um, and it's hard to know what to make of the idea of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That is to say, how to understand that. Because clearly, um, there are two readings, two possible readings of what that means. One, that after you have the apple, um, you can only know good by evil. That you can't have a pure knowledge of good without also having a knowledge of evil. Um, and so that eating the apple, the really bad thing that it does is it acquaints you with evil. So the tree of the fruit of the tree of knowledge is the fruit that tells you good and evil. And you may try to distinguish between them and say, we knew good before that, but now the tree makes us know evil and can only make us know good in the context of evil. But if you read the story symmetrically, that is, treat good and evil as symmetrical, there's a strong hint that you can't know what good is any more than you can know what evil is till you eat the fruit. That is, that goodness itself, knowledge of goodness, requires eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. It's the knowledge of good as well as the knowledge of evil. So a lot depends on what you take the and to mean. That is, is it like 
Um, an and which means not without, good not without evil, or is it an and which means the fruit told, tells you both what's good and what's evil. Um, if it's a not without, then before we ate the fruit, we might have known good without evil. But if it's a um, both of them independently, then we didn't know good before we ate the fruit. Um, and you should think about which one it's likely that Milton was thinking. But if you think about what it means to know good and evil, well, what would that knowledge be, allow you to be able to do? Let's say that it means you learn both good and evil by eating the fruit. Once you know of both good and evil, once you have knowledge of both good and of evil, what can you do that you couldn't do before? Good. Okay, you can do good. Um, what can you do by way of knowledge rather than by way of action, let's say? Yeah. You can choose between good and evil, um, and reason is also choice, God will say later. Um, what else can you do? Yeah. You can understand what the gods know, or what God knows, and what the angels know. Okay, and that's what Satan precisely said to Eve, that if you eat the fruit, you'll, 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 yeah, you shall be as gods, and you'll be able to go to heaven and see what life the gods live there, and such live thou. Doug? I was going to say that, like, good acts become, like, intentional or altruistic, and it's not just one's nature. Okay, yeah, it requires thinking. So the, basically the three faculties tradi that philosophy traditionally um, ascribes to the human mind um, are, th uh, I'm not sure that this goes all the way back to Augustine, but it might, are thinking, willing, and judging. Um, if you know, if you recall Kant, um, you'll remember that Kant wrote three great critiques of those three faculties. That is, there's the critique of pure reason, which is thinking. That is, Kant is describing what the mind has to be in order to be able to think. There's the critique of practical reason, which is actually willing. Practical reason is, is um, the, the faculty of mind that um, does stuff that is put stuff into practice. So it's actually the, he said, I should, I, I thought about calling it the critique of pure practical reason, but that might be a little bit confusing. Um, and there are other reasons not to call it that, but practical, people who haven't read Kant think pure reason is la-di-da, um, what is being and what is, what is truth, and practical reason is um, how do I get um, to, um, to downtown um, on a Saturday. Um, but it's not. Practical reason is the part of mind that decides what to do. So the critique of pure reason um, is essentially addresses the question, what can I um, know? The critique of practical reason is, what should I do? And then the third critique is the critique of judgment. So the three things the mind does is to think, to will, and to judge. And um, philosophy traditionally addresses those three things differently. Um, judgment, in a way, is what logic is about. How do you see how propositions interact with each other? Um, willing is about what should I do, and thinking is about what can I know. Um, epistemology. So if you know good and evil, 
And then if you follow up Doug that, and, and also Emily, that can also tell you what you should will. And it brings your will into focus. Um, but what does that knowledge about the different kinds of active willing um, allow you to do? The third possibility. To judge. To judge. Yeah. You can only judge others' ways. Justify God's ways to me. Yeah. So eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil makes it possible to judge God's ways. Um, again, to repeat, something only humans can do is judge God's ways. Just are the ways of God and justifiable to men. What am I quoting? All right. Yes. Um, so eating the fruit is precisely, it's the fall, but it's the fall that makes judgment possible. So, it was from the rind of one apple tasted that the knowledge of good and evil as two twins cleaving together leapt forth into the world, and perhaps this is that doom which Adam fell into of knowing good and evil, that is to say, of knowing good by evil. As therefore the state of man now is, what wisdom can there be to choose what continents to forbear without the knowledge of evil. So you can't choose, you can't refuse, forbear, without the knowledge of evil. There's no wisdom there. In order to choose the good or to forbear from doing the evil, you'd better know what's, e what's evil. And how will you know it unless there's freedom of inquiry? unless you can read even evil books and say, no, I'm not going to do that. He that can apprehend and consider vice with all her baits and seeming pleasures, and yet abstain, and yet distinguish, and yet prefer that which is truly better, he is the true warfaring Christian. And then a very famous um, passage. I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue, unexercised and unbreathed, that never sallies out and sees her adversary, but slinks out of the race where that immortal garland is to be run for, not without dust and heat. So a fugitive and cloistered virtue, someone who is kept from knowing the truth. There's no praise for that, for someone who is good because they have no experience of the world and are just um, cloistered up and prevented from getting any experience of the world. Assuredly, we bring not innocence into the world. We bring impurity much rather. So when we're born Remember in Paradise Lost, he's going to talk about how the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world. He likes that phrase, bringing X into the world. Assuredly, this is 20 years earlier than Paradise Lost, assuredly, we bring not innocence into the world, we bring impurity, much rather. That which purifies us is trial, and trial is by what is contrary. So that's the thing to see is the through line from Comus to Paradise Lost, to Paradise Regained, to Samson. That in 
every case a trial, a test is given. And it's not a test like these quizzes, which are meant to see whether you did the reading. Um, it's a test the very experience of which will, will purify you, will make you a better person. It's what we've been talking about from the start in this class, that the experience of struggle is what's important. If you believe you've easily defeated error, then you have an erroneous view of error because you actually have to struggle with error. And luckily for Red Cross, he starts struggling with error because of his error in thinking that he doesn't have to struggle with error. That's the error he has to struggle with. We're circling back like a, oh, I don't know, serpent devouring its tail um, to the beginning of this class, to the issues we started with. That virtue, therefore, which is but a youngling in the contemplation of evil, and knows not the utmost that vice promises to her followers and rejects it, is but a blank virtue, not a pure. So that's a really crucial distinction in Milton between the blank and the pure. Blank just means it's like a sheet of paper on which nothing is written. It's white, but not white for purity, white simply for blankness. It's untested. And blank itself is a word that Milton likes so that he will say that for the book of knowledge fair he is presented with uh, this is, this is uh, irrigation book three. Yes. Um, nature's works many sponges and rays and, and for them, yeah. one entrance quite shut out. Yeah, you're skipping Yes. <laughs> and for the Book of Knowledge Fair presented with a universal blank. In a, if you think about that in the context of this, um, of this sentence in, in um, Aripagetica, that a universal blank, blankness everywhere, that's what he sees. Not purity, not whiteness, not glory everywhere. If you've read um, Saramago's Blindness, um, Saramago might be thinking about this. Um, for the Book of Knowledge, have you read it? Has anyone read it? Amazing. Have you seen the movie? I haven't seen the movie. No, no one's seen the movie? Really? Cool. Blindness. Okay. Um, well, that's something. Blindness is like blindness. Yeah. It's like a refusal to see. Yeah. Yes. So for the book of, so here what we have is the Book of Knowledge Fair presented with universal blank here. That virtue, therefore, which is but a youngling in the contemplation of evil, that is, has no experience, is, um, is a child in the contemplation of evil, and knows not the utmost that vice promises to her followers and doesn't reject it, that is to say, and rejects it, is but a blank virtue, not a pure. Her whiteness is but an excremental whiteness. So that's a pretty vivid um, description. Um, her whiteness is but an excremental whiteness. What you should actually be thinking of here is leprosy. Lividity, really. Um, leprosy. Her whiteness is but an excremental whiteness, which was the reason our sage and serious poet Spencer, whom I dare be known to think a better teacher than Scotus or Aquinas, describing true temperance under the person of Guyon, 
brings him in with his palmer through the cave of mammon and the bower of earthly bliss that he might see and know and yet abstain. So it's seeing and knowing and yet abstaining. That's good and evil. It's those conjunctions. Know and abstain. Don't abstain without knowing. Know and abstain. So a fugitive and cloistered virtue. Um, here he's talking about monasteries. The whole point of this book is that it's anti-Catholic, of Aripagitica, is that it's anti-Catholic, that it's um, against the idea <coughs> that the government, the church government, um, the uh, theological powers, Holy Mother Church, will protect us from what it would be harmful for us to know. Um, you know, it's, the, it's, it's an early attack on what the Tea Party now calls the nanny state, um, the state that makes sure that you don't get yourself into trouble, um, but intervenes. And Milton is writing against that, um, I think for better reasons, but Milton is writing against that. Um, but what else would he be describing besides um, um, being enclosed in monasteries and, um, and nunneries and um, other places where you won't be tempted by um, things that might um, be difficult to resist. What other fugitive and cloistered place might spring to mind? Eden. Eden, yeah. So um, again, there are a couple of ways to read this, and one is that no, Adam and Eve did much better by eating the fruit because then they could see what it meant fully to understand um, good and evil and what it meant fully to think these things out. Um, it can also, and, I mean, and I'm saying and, not or, it and it can also mean that this is why Satan is in, e is in Eden too to refer to the great tag, um, et ego in Arcadia, I too am in Arcadia, um, which is a famous um, topic for um, painting and poetry. I am in Arcadia as well, says death, or says Satan, or says the serpent, um, which is that unless there's temptation in Eden, even in Eden, unless there is the possibility of real temptation and real abstention. Unless that's there in Eden, um, it's a it would be a fugitive and cloistered place, a place not of purity but of blankness. But if you, if you see it that way, which I think is a reasonable way to see it and which is certainly conforms with what God says in Book 3 of Paradise Lost, if you see it that way, um, then what you have to say is that in some sense or other, Adam and Eve had to already know good and evil in order to, for their abstention from the fruit to be the right thing to do. They had to know what the fruit, what eating the fruit was going to teach them. They had to already know it. Um, and you can say, therefore, either they did already know it, which 
seems a reasonable enough thing to say about Adam just before he eats, if not earlier. Or that not knowing it, their abstention from the fruit was not something um, that they could be expected to have the background to understand. Again, Adam talks about death as some dreadful thing, no doubt. Um, now, what I would say is that the really interesting thing about Paradise Lost, um, the huge trick for Judeo-Christian theology and for Milton is to make the temptation of Eve something which it's wrong for her to do, but something which a person who is absolutely good might nevertheless do. That is the really hard thing to think through, is why someone who is good would do an evil thing, that is, eat the fruit. And if she doesn't know it's evil, then how can she be, then is it an evil thing? And Milton wants it both ways, yeah. I think it's interesting also that the, the Christian tradition, um, they, they, they attest her eating the fruit to pride, the, the, the foundational sin, and the Jewish or Hebraic tradition actually attested to, to that, that Satan tried to coerce her through envy, yeah. that God is envious. So is there, I don't know, does the Judeo-Christian tradition, does it kind of, does it bring together envy and pride? Are they paired? Um, well, it's... Christianity may be doing that. Yeah, Christianity may be doing that. Remember that in, for the Jews, the serpent isn't Satan. Um, the serpent is just a serpent. Um, and the serpent is, in some sense, envious of Eve and wants to get her into trouble. Um, Milton gets that. That is, he makes sure that Satan is envious of Adam and Eve. So he gets that in. But again, the thing to see here is that the real difficult trick and it's a trick that Milton doesn't have to deal with in Paradise Regained because the son doesn't submit to temptation. He's tempted, he resists. And, he, and um, in a sense what you're getting is here's what Eve could have done, is what the son does in Paradise Regained. Here's what Eve could have done. However, um, the other place where Milton has someone submit to temptation, as stupidly as you can possibly imagine, is Samson who, I mean, the idiocy of Samson, who is generally regarded as the dumbest person, um, the dumbest hero in the Old Testament. Um, Jonah is a close second, but <laughs> Samson is really regarded as the dumbest person in the Old Testament, is that she's, she's screwed with him already. <laughs> he already knows what she's trying to do to him. And he says, well, this time, you know, it's Charlie Brown and Lucy in the football. <laughs> Ask your parents if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, does everyone know about Lucy in the football? Yeah, yeah okay, good. Um, same deal. Um, but Milton thought through temptation most strongly in Paradise Lost. And the idea now, this is what I want to say, is that Adam and Eve separate. That's the first thing that goes wrong. And Satan rejoices in their separation. He can't believe it. He says, this is going to work. Their separation is one whereby the fall of, of humanity occurs when they've both eaten the fruit. Eve's eating the fruit hasn't done it yet. Eve's eating the fruit half does it, but only half. Adam eating the fruit is the, is the fall of man, singular. 
But man, not Adam. Man, namely humanity, Adam and Eve. And so the temptation is actually fulfilled when Eve eats the fruit. She represents eating the fruit without knowing evil. And that doesn't seem that punishable. Adam then represents the second half of what has to be a double process, knowing the fruit, eating the fruit, knowing that it's evil. So Eve's eating the fruit gives Adam the knowledge of evil. It's as though he, man, eats the fruit through Eve's mouth and then knows evil. As a couple, as a unit, then Adam eats the fruit, already knowing evil. And once he eats the fruit, he does what he knows is evil. And he knows it's, and he says so before he eats it. But he does it in order now also to know good. Adam's eating the fruit is both good and evil simultaneously. Eve's eating the fruit is neither good nor evil. And the pairing of good and evil occurs when they've both eaten the fruit. I think that's the really complex orchestration of the fall that Milton comes up with or gets out of the story in Genesis and insists on their separation. You know, it just happens in Genesis, but Milton insists on their separation. Um, all right, so tomorrow we will talk about uh, Paradise Regained and Samson in um, further detail. Um, and I will email you about where and when. I mean, well, you know when, 9.30 on the dot, but I will email you about where.